be in Mark chapter 2 this morning. looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Very familiar passage probably to, to all of you. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was back at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Arise! and take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let us pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do again ask that you would allow us to see Jesus, allow us to see him in all of his glory as the Son of Man and the Son of God, to see him as one who is able to do these things, both in physical and in the spiritual realms, that he is Lord of all. And we ask that you would help us to walk in these things, to meditate on them, and to apply them to our lives, that we may be glory to you, that we may be built up, we ask in Christ's name, amen. I have often thought of Mark as would be a, a great um, cinematographer, someone directing the uh, filming of a motion picture. He gives us motion. He gives us immediacy. He gives us detail. Not only in what he says, and he does add uh, much to what the uh, other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, say about this passage and many other passages in which they are in harmony, but sometimes he helps us understand by what is not said, what is not filmed. Uh, leaving us to try to understand what, why would he not speak to 
those things. And we, we see, again, the, the motion, his favorite word, immediately. Um, he, he, he almost doesn't let us rest. But you, you get in this passage, you get that sense of the, the urgency of the men and the, the, the scene, the, the tension that is in this scene. And, and Mark, I think, brings that out very clearly to us. And Mark speaks in... I, I'm not sure, I'm not the grammarian, but I think they're called colloquialisms. Little phrases that um, were, were used in that day, uh, translated uh, from the Greek for us. But there are phrases that, that are still around in the 21st century, things that you would identify with. Um, but we have a vivid scene here uh, of Peter's house. And what we're led to believe is that when Jesus, after he had the encounter with the leper, and in verse 45 of chapter 1, he went out uh, and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly minister. He couldn't enter the city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. He, he was attracting these crowds, but now he's apparently back in Capernaum. And the words that, that Mark uses here, um, the New American Standard, again, is a little bit lame. It says he, they heard that he was at home. But, but you would hear language like this. He, it, it literally says, it was noised about him. And, and you can imagine somebody, you know, getting up early in the morning and, you know, his wife saying, um, honey, where, where are you going? And he said, well, there's some noise in the city that this itinerant preacher and healer is back. And I'm going to go see what this is all about. I want to go hear him preach and teach. I want to see what this is. There was this noise about him that Mark says. And we know that there was this crowd gathering there. Um, many were gathered. And we even understand from Mark that there were scribes. Uh, the other gospel writers tell us there were Pharisees and what are called doctors of the law, people who were learned in the law of Moses, people who were, were trained and educated to explain these things and to write about these things. They were there as well. And they were gathered to hear Jesus speaking the word to them. I, I don't know that I've encountered this in Mark yet, or we've encountered this phrase, speaking the word to them. The, the word for speaking is more, um, if you remember, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, uh, the big 25-cent word, onomatopoeia. It's a word that's supposed to help you understand you know, what it's like. It, it conveys the, the motion and the sound and the manner of his speech. He was speaking to them in their own language, obviously, but he was speaking to them, discoursing with them. But it, the word... He, he was doing what he came to do. He was proclaiming the word of God. He is preaching to them. There's, there's an imminent sense of this idea of the word, the gospel he's proclaiming. And this is the scene that and they're crowded around so much so that the door is blocked. That, that they're, and we don't know quite what uh, Peter's house looked like, um, whether it was a single story or double-story dwelling, probably with a fat, flat roof, but they were crowded inside and perhaps outside in the courtyard, outside in the street, listening to him preach. And then Mark 
again, uses language here um, in verse 3. And they came, again, that's the New American's translation. It's actually a historical present. It's as if you were listening to an eyewitness, and many believe that Mark was writing down what Peter actually told him. But think about your children when they tell about something that's happening in the neighborhood or at school or, you know, among their friends or a TV show, movie they watch. They, they don't speak really in the past tense. They, they, and, and there were men coming, and, and they were carrying this paralytic on their pallet, and there were four of them carrying on the corners, and here they came, but they couldn't get in because nobody would part for them. The door was blocked. They couldn't get in to see. So what do they do? Well, they don't turn around and go home. They, they climbed up on the roof, and they came across the, the roof and began to take it apart. And again, we don't know exactly what Peter's house was like. Many of those houses had outdoor stairs that, that went up on the roof. The roofs were flat. Some of them had, had grass growing up there, and that's where they would keep their goats and let them cut the grass um, on the roof. These, we know from the other gospel writers, there was some kind of tile up there. But somehow they made their, their way up on the roof. They dragged this guy and his pallet up on the roof. And... Again, it's something that, you know, uh, we might be familiar with. Uh, people going across roofs. If, if you've seen the Jason Bourne movies, right, where he goes across, right, and then, uh, you know, you cue up the, the music, the drama music, the very heavy on the downbeat, right, and he's running across the roofs and skipping across. People apparently did that. The rabbis called it the, the road of the roofs. That's how people got around. They, they went across other people's roofs to get to places. And these men did not let the obstacle of a blocked doorway slow them down. They went up on the roof. And some of you are construction people. You've built things or you've, you know, you've built a shed or you've repaired your roof. Okay? We, we get a pun from Mark, right? He's being punny here. The idea is that they unroofed the roof. They started taking the roof apart, peeling up the tiles. And I don't know whether they encountered the plaster or the lath, but they're taking the roof of the house apart. Imagine the people inside listening to Jesus, right? They're, they're probably going, uh, you know, what's going on up there? Uh, think about Jesus having to stop his discourse, his sermon, to see this opening appear in the roof. I don't know, I, I'm kind of goofy, I think about Peter, you know, I should have called Geico 15 minutes ago, you know, I, I, I got, does my insurance policy cover this? And they were carrying the paralytic, and they dropped him down, probably ropes on the four corners of the pallet, and put him right down in front of Jesus. Now we have to understand that the word in the Greek for paralytic, paralysis, this man is not a quadriplegic. He has palsy. Some of your versions will actually use the word palsy. Paralysis in Greek covers all of those things, anything that was a disability of arms, limbs, face. If you've ever seen anyone with palsy, you know, and in fact, the Greek word translates a di disability of one side of the body. 
There is some, and I think even in the 21st century medical community, and I have to be careful about anything related to medicine, but my understanding is we don't really know what causes the different palsies. But if you've seen someone with palsy, it's a neurological disorder that really does affect one side of the body at a time. Where someone's face, they, they can't control the muscles of the face. We, we have an acquaintance uh, of mine from uh, summer school, and he was visiting not too long ago, and he had Bell's palsy. And he apologized greatly because he said, it's like I ha my tongue is a wooden stick in my mouth. I can barely talk. And his eyelid could not close, so therefore his eye was bloodshot because it couldn't refresh itself. And many people with palsies will go blind, but the great distortion was the side of his face. He could not control that side. It would just droop. He, the muscles would not respond. And this man has what we can understand is palsy of one side of his body where it was like a paralysis. He could not lift his arm or leg on one side and he was not able to walk and get around on his own. They were unable to get in to see Jesus because the door was blocked by so many people, but they climbed up on the roof, they unroofed the roof, and they dropped him down in. And Jesus doesn't even give the man, if he could talk, or his friends a chance to say anything. But our scriptures tells us in verse 5, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. He recognizes with his eye of faith, the faith in these. Not just the men who brought the man, but the man himself, I believe. There were at least five of them. There may have been more following along behind. One writer has said, Jesus is never offended by faith that brings men to him, only by unbelief that keeps men from him. He wasn't offended by this. We might expect him to say, look, you know, excuse me, I was preaching here. No, there is no offense in Christ. His eye was well pleased at the faith actions that he saw. That He witnessed this. They overcame obstacles to come and present their friend to him. Their faith was strong. It was persistent. And it was even inventive. Pray for a faith like that. Not only strong, but persistent and inventive. We, we talk as Christians in the Western society about, well, you know, if the Lord opens that door, or, you know, that door was closed. Well, yes, the door was blocked. But their faith... <laughs> Their faith was persistent and strong. We would see Jesus. We would come before him. We would present him because we know that he can heal. And there is logic. They needed help. Help is in the power of God. God's power to help is mediated in Jesus. And through him and in him, his healing ability. 
Jesus was the object of their faith. Jesus was the one whom they sought. And they would not be denied. They would come to him. It comes back to faith. Think of Jesus, the two blind men who stood on the side of the road and they cried out, Jesus, have mercy on us. And what does Jesus say? Do you believe that I am able to do this? That is the same question that Jesus is asking. Jesus saw it in them, but he would ask us, do you believe that I am able to do this thing? And think about the man, what was inmost in his heart and mind? What would the paralytic be thinking? Again, I believe that his faith is what Jesus saw. He is among those counted as faithful and having faith here that Jesus could heal. Perhaps there was fear, uh, a holy fear. Do, does my sin hinder my being healed? And I think the Jews are closer at least in our understanding of the rabbinic writings and others, closer to our conviction of the connection of sin and sickness. Without sin, there would be no sickness. Without the evil and wickedness in this world, without the fall, there would not be these diseases and these things. And, and there is this, this connection. There, there is this idea of, of forgiveness connected to coming judgment. We read in the Old Testament about these kinds of connections of sin and disease, sin and leprosy, sin and paralysis. And Jesus gives before the man asks, and better than the man could have asked, he has this very affectionate term, term. Some of your versions say, my son. It, 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 it's, I think it's more affectionate than that. It, it's child. It, it's, it's dear one that he addresses this man. And Jesus, being the knower of the heart, knew what it would mean for this man to be healed to be forgiven of his sins, but he, wouldn't, he knew what it would be for the crowd to hear him say this. He knew what it would be to the Pharisees and the doctors of the law and the scribes. He knew what it would be to future readers of this gospel. And so he says, child, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I found in the commentaries a, a running debate, if I can understand it. Is this a command or is it a declaration? Well, I, I may be wrong, but in my study, I think it's neither. There are those who say it, 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 he's not giving a command, be forgiven. And there are some who say he's making a declaration, you are forgiven. But there are... Some who would, would say, well, no, that is not what Jesus came on earth to do. Not to declare that someone is forgiven, but to do the action. And I would think that what we would say is this is not a command and not a declaration, but it's an actual event. Child, your sins are forgiven. And when the words came out of Jesus' mouth, his sins were forgiven. God's motion in his soul wrought forgiveness of his sins. 
your sins are forgiven. I pardon you. Spoken not about the man, spoken to the man and in the man and in his heart. And the sins were dismissed in the moment in which Jesus spoke the word. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? Why were they there? Why did these, these men come, these scribes, these Pharisees, these doctors of the law? Well, some surmise that they came out of curiosity. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? We're hearing all these things about things that he has done. Let, let's go and see for ourselves. Others believe that they probably came and agreed that, you know, we need to sort this out. We need to find out who this guy is and make a judgment. People are asking us, what do we think about him? We need to come up with a consensus. What do we think about this man, Jesus? But they were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. There is a murmuring, but, it, but it's not heard. It, it's, it's a heart murmur, if you will. Let me make that pun. And, and we, if we were sitting there, we'd say, yeah, yeah, but Jesus has got this one. Because I've been in meetings, you know, where, where, you know, I say something in a presentation and my boss is back there, you know, folding his hands, right, or folding his arms. Or people, you know, leaning toward one another. And you read body language and you see things happening and you think, you know, I, yeah, okay, I, I can read this. Facial expressions. I, I can see them kind of looking at each other and, you know, kind of shaking their head. But that's not what happened. Read the text. And immediately, verse 8, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them. He, he knew in his own spirit what they were thinking. These guys may, may have been very good at the poker face, right? They're not giving anything away, not letting their body language do it, but Jesus knew. Jesus read them, if I could. The old cliche, he read them like an open book. He asked them, why, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? He knew that they had contempt for him. He, he knew that they were asking this question, you know, who is this man to be able to speak this way? He knew that he was being accused of blasphemy. They said it in their hearts. It wasn't audible, but he knew. And we know from the other scriptures, Jesus actually says, he knows what is in the heart of man. They are about to receive a lesson for the ages. That, that Jesus not only has the power to say, thy sins are forgiven, but to actually heal the disease that is a result of sin. He has the power to do this, to say to the man who cannot walk, arise, take up your pallet, and go home. But he confronts them with their own thoughts. Can you imagine how astonished they were when, when they're kind of staring at the floor, not giving anything away, and Jesus says to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts like that? I mean, wouldn't that shock you if someone said that about you? 
Jesus could read them. Jesus knew these things. We read in the scriptures about God. We think about the rebuke that he gave, wasn't it Samuel, who went looking for the king, right? And he was looking at Jesse's sons and he's going down the line and he's pick, oh yeah, this guy, he's tall, he's handsome, he's, he looks like a warrior. And God says, God doesn't see as man sees. God looks upon the heart, not the outward appearance. Or David, after he learned that lesson, he tells his son Solomon as he's handing over the kingdom in 1 Chronicles 28, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If, if we only could grasp that idea when, when we're at school, when we're at work, when we're driving, right, and we see somebody doing something, God understands the intents and purposes of our hearts. He searches all hearts. It's, it's not just the doctors and Pharisees of the law. It's us. It's all of us. And they're charged to him that he blasphemes. The dictionary definition of blasphemy is injurious speech or slander, false and damaging statements about someone. But this is not a Merriam-Webster society we're looking at here. This is a monotheistic view. And, and these people had a better view of blasphemy Cursing and saying slander and injurious things about God, yes, that's blasphemy. But it also included any attempt to take away from God honor or, or authority which rightfully belong to him. And they were looking at Jesus and saying, wait a minute. That's blasphemy. He is taking honor and glory away from Jehovah by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. And I think they were correctly interpreting the definition. Who can forgive sins, they asked, except God alone. They asked the first right question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the force, the forces that clash over this very issue are still clashing today. Is Jesus Christ God? That's what it comes down to, does it not? The deity of Jesus Christ. Does he really have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. And there are many in our world today who, who want to, to play that little game. Well, he was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a good example. But you can't play that game because Jesus claimed to be God. My father and I are one. Before Abraham was, I am. And here he says, do you believe that I have authority to forgive sins? See, the clash still goes on. The clash is here. But their flaw was 
that they would not allow themselves any idea that Jesus had a peculiar relation to God which justified his claim. They couldn't even countenance that. They couldn't even make themselves go there. And their sin was not allowing themselves or others to see and recognize what their own scripture said about him, what kind of savior he would be, what he would do and what he would do to glorify the Father as the only begotten of the Father. That his reasoning would be as God's reasoning and as not as man's. In John chapter 10, he confronts the Pharisees with these questions. If I do the works of my Father, though you do not believe me, at least believe the works that I do. Some have said this is Mount Carmel revisited. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. There were 850, some of them. And basically, I, they, they come together on Mount Carmel for this showdown with these two opposing sides. And, and Moses says, how, or uh, Elijah, sorry, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? See, again, here's the opposition. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Choose this day. Really? Right? If God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So what they did was they set up the fire pits, right? They put the wood and they put the sacrifice on there. And all day long, the prophets of Baal called upon their gods and they danced and they cut themselves and did all the things. And at the end of the day, there was no fire. There was no voice. There was nothing. Until Elijah said in his prayer to God, God... Let it be known that there are God in Israel. And the fire came down and consumed the wood and it consumed the stones and it consumed the dirt and it consumed all the water and all the sacrifice. And the answer was done. The Lord got the final word. No need for Elijah to say anymore. Well, Jesus is going to get the final word here. There's no dancing and cutting and crying out from these Pharisees and scribes. In fact, I think Mark, when he shows us, you know, it's very puzzling. They don't say a word. Before or after the incident, the order of displaying his authority presented to them the unquestioned reality. Jesus does have authority to forgive sins. See, if it had happened in any other situation, you know, we wouldn't see this story so clearly. And if it happened in the reverse order that he healed first and then waited to say it, it wouldn't have the impact that he needed it to have upon them. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? If I can do one, he says, the thing which you see then you have to know that I have done the other which you can't see. In order that you may see, he says to the paralytic. Again, Mark has that dramatic pause there. 
He's been talking to them. He's been saying, why are you reasoning in your hearts about these things? And then he turns specifically to the paralytic and he says, arise, take up your pallet and be walking. Three short commands. Arise, take up that pallet and be walking. And Mark tells us, he arose, followed the first one, and immediately took up his pallet, followed the second one, and went out in the sight of all. And again, here's where I think the cinematography of Mark, he, he could have just shown us the man walking down the road. He could have shown us just, you know, flip to, he's at home, his wife is hugging him, you're back, you're healed, we're amazed. No, he says, and he went out in the sight of all. The people sitting there, the people crowding the door, the people maybe looking in the windows or down through the hole in the roof now, the doctors and the scribes and the Pharisees, they all, he went out in the sight of them all. Very dramatic. They, have, they can't possibly miss that this man who was not walking, who was paralyzed, is now <laughs> As, as someone said very quaintly, the pallet that bore him in was the pallet that he bore out. He picked up his pallet, but he went out in the sight of them all. They could not miss it. And the silence of the scribes and the Pharisees and the doctors of the law is deafening. No response. No one can forgive sins except the one against whom all sin is committed. That's just a scriptural law. No one can do that. All sin is committed. The words of David in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. All sin is sin against a holy God. But Jesus says, in effect, you are correct in thinking that he who has the power to exercise authority is in heaven. But just as he who has descended from heaven is the person of the Son of Man, he has brought this power with him. Notice he says, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, to forgive sins. It is the power of heaven brought to earth in the Son of Man. And this is Jesus' own appellation. This is the name that Jesus gives to himself. It's his favorite designation. The Son of Man has power to forgive sins. And in order to demonstrate it, I say to you, arise, take up your pallet, and walk. As one act is by authority of him who is God, so is the other. This is our great high priest. This is our great man. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says, We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, and yet he has come to earth. He has power on earth to forgive sins. Now, some of you may be thinking this strange name that he has given to himself, the Son of Man. Where does it come from? Well, I believe that it comes from the book of Daniel. 
that it comes from a section that Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and recognizes, yes, this is what it says of me. I'm going to read these two verses from Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, Daniel, you, know, you might be saying, well, Daniel's... Uh, an apocalyptic book. Daniel's one of eschatology. It looks at the end times. It looks at the fate of man and the, the fate of people and the judgment that is to come. And that is true. And that's very important to recognize here. Jesus is bringing that phrase of eschatology, of final judgment, and he's speaking it here on earth in front of men. Because this phrase that he has named himself by points to, yes, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who is to come. But in that appellation, there are two thoughts. There is the thought of lowly humility and the suffering servant combined with the one who would be the judge and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They go together. And, and this is an astounding thing that he's telling these men. And again, it's astounding that they're not standing up and shouting, wait a minute, wait a minute. He is the representative man. He is the second Adam. He is the Lord from heaven. He knew that he was not descended from man, but he takes on the nature of man, bearing it as no man ever had. We have these notions about Jesus, about what he ought to be. But as one of the writers said, and I really like this phrase, the real Jesus is better than the ideal Jesus. You know, we, we kind of have this idea that Jesus ought to be like this. And then when we see him in reality, the way he deals with people, we think, you know, the real Jesus is better than the ideal. Richard Lenski writes, by this new title, Jesus denationalized his messiahship and his kingship. He was the redeemer of all men. Do you see the paradox here? The ultimate judge who has authority to forgive sins is also the suffering servant who came to serve and not to be served. And he must travel the road to the cross, but along the way he forgives the sins of people because, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he will, once for all, die for their sins. This is Jesus. This is the one who has presented himself before them as not only the one who has authority to say, your sins are forgiven, but to say to the man, arise, take up your pallet, and be walking. And what do we see happen? What's the result of these things? And they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Man's wrath did bring praise and glory to God. Do you see how that works? It's amazing. We think, you know, the wrath of God, oh, it's awful. Yes, but God has turned it into his glory. 
This is the first time we see in Mark opposition to Jesus' ministry. And, and yet it's not spoken. It's what he felt in his own heart that they were feeling in their hearts. And you imagine this crowd as this man is walking out. Now they're going to part, right? The sea is going to part and they're gonna, he's going to walk through because they're amazed. They, they move away from the door and they let him out because of the astonishment. And they've witnessed that this man is done. And what is Mark showing us? Well, we have to put these things together. And I, and I believe there's a reason. You know, I would have started chapter 2 at, at chapter 1, verse 40, with the leper. And, and then the healing here of the paralytic. And then you go on to Matthew. And, and in picking Matthew, the tax collector. And what you see is that formal Judaism had no remedy, no healing for leprosy. And here we see that formal Judaism had no word of forgiveness of sins. And what we're going to see next week is formal Judaism had no word, no comfort, no welcome for sinners. Do you see how Jesus is showing us? He, with the leper, he showed, I am the supreme will. I am the priest who can touch and Say, you are healed. Here he is the high priest. He is very God. He can pronounce forgiveness of sins. And he is the very high priest that we need. And if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is the phrase, this is the voice that you need to hear of Jesus. Child, your sins are forgiven you. There is a judgment to come. And there is a day when Jesus will come, not in accordance with sin, but to judge. And just as the cry that day on Mount Carmel, just as God won the day, and, and there was nothing that the prophets of Baal could say, they were speechless and could not do anything with their own God but to acknowledge, as the crowd did, Jehovah, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. So now, with amazement, there are people praising God, glorifying him, and saying, God, be glorified, as this man took up his pallet and walked out among them. Dr. Piper, the president of the seminary where I went, and I, I think it's very applicable here, used to say to those who would be on the opposition, is Jesus God? And they would say, again, he's a good man, good teacher, all of these things. And he would pull them up short by saying, you look at the scriptures. You will see that Jesus has the words Jesus has the works, and yes, Jesus has the worship. Jesus is God. If, on, if even on earth, even as in his humiliation as the Son of Man, he has the power to forgive sins, 
would we not bow down and worship him? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again ask that you would use these things to, to fill our hearts and minds with the joy and, and the glory and the, the majesty that is, is Christ, and that we would worship him, and that we would be as the men and the man on the pallet. We would have faith that was strong, persistent, and inventive, that nothing would prevent us from coming to you. We ask that you would do this. We ask that you would use these things to build your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them.